Welcome to Regulate Tech. Uh, this is our 32nd episode with me, Niklas Berlumblad, and... With me, Richard Allen. So, uh, we thought that we would do a, a craft-oriented episode and talk a little bit about the dynamics between the press and policy this time around. And with the press, we mean, of course, anything media-related. It can be TV, it can be radio, it can be, be newspapers. But the, the sort of question of how, how do you think about interacting with the press in different instances and different situations when you're running a policy team? Because there's obviously the comms team and you need to work closely with them. But as a policy team, you will get dragged into a quite specific set of press events. And so... Why don't we why don't we start with just talking a little bit about the logic of the press cycle? How does how does this typically happen? And is it different from country to country? Are there some countries where the press cycle is more dominant than others? Yeah, I, I think it does vary from country to country. And and you, you're right. I mean, some companies will not find the press is such a big deal. And I think we need to start by by sort of looking at what the press's motivation is. And the, and the press everyone has sort of two motivations. People who, who work in tech companies, they want to make money, but they also are building a product they think the world loves. Politicians want to win votes, but they also believe that they're acting in the public interest to do good for the world. And the press, similarly, they want to sell newspapers or get eyeballs on their on their TV shows, but they also, I think, genuinely believe they have a mission to kind of shine a light on what's going on in the world and particularly where things are going bad, badly. And there's no doubt, you know, that if you're in a big name tech company and there's something that's gone wrong, so it's not to take away from that, they're not manufacturing this, but, you know, the headline of Google screws up or TikTok screws up or Facebook screws up is going to generate a lot of interest because so many people use these services. <laughs> and so part of the, the cycle is that, you know, the press are very actively looking for stories, both to fulfill their core mission because they believe it's important. Um, that, that you do shed a light on these big companies, but also crucially because they're going to get a lot of um, uh, attention and interest when they publish stories around, particularly these big name companies. And there's an interesting schizophrenia there. A, a colleague of mine, Peter Baramos, pointed out that that you know on page one, um, tech companies tend to be horrible, but on page fourteen, you can get ten tips on how to better use your Gmail or how to get your Facebook groups working. And so, the, it, it, what what do we make of that schizophrenia as we yeah. sort of look at the motivations you just spoke about? I mean, I think that the press is i always feel is finely tuned where it's successful is because it's finely tuned to the public uh, to public opinion and i often think public opinion around tech companies is often best described as a love hate relationship they love the products and services that they're being offered and yet they'll also hate the companies at times for a whole host of different reasons. Um, and it's those, it's so, so that's why you'll get both stories that, that, you know, the bit of you that loves, uh, these companies actually does want the top tips on how to use it. And actually, you know, once the, often it'll be the, the sort of more, um, photogenic, uh, uh, stuff like Instagram would be a classic service or TikTok, you know, the funny little TikTok clip or the glamorous Instagram photo that makes its way into the press and, and they'll put that in their story and they'll, they'll get, you know, fabulous attention for a story that's entirely derived from one of these services. So that's the love bit. And then the hate bit is, well, when they do things that annoy people, uh, and, and that could be, you know, things like taking down their content where they feel it's inappropriate or, or leaving content up that is awful. 
then you know you put a story about that out and and everybody can sort of get around that and go god damn it you know those companies are really really bad at doing x or y and so that's i think where the press is sitting is they want to feed the love and the hate because people are going to read both of them Right, right, and and so getting back to the press cycle, you you spoke about the motivations of the different parties involved, and um, how does the press cycle start when you are in your office and someone comes in with a newspaper or with a clip or a radio? What is that? What is the first indication that you, as a policy person, need to engage with the press? What's a, what? Yeah. Give us an example. So, so it'll be a it'll be a mix. Um, so sometimes it will be you know, a, a sort of genuine citizen coming in off the street to a, a media outlet and saying, look, you know, I posted photos of uh, myself breastfeeding. This is a real one from Facebook. And Facebook took them down. It's outrageous. Why are they taking down photos of breastfeeding? And so there, the, in a sense, the press are being reactive, but they smell a good story. <clears throat> and the company's sort of being reactive. And, and that will become a policy issue very quickly because it's about, you know, are the companies oppressing women? Or are they discriminating against women when they take down photos of breastfeeding? So it's a, it's a policy story, but come from a, a regular citizen. Uh, we need to sort of dig into that a little bit because there's a regular sitting coming into the the the, the editor or the journalist and saying this. And what the journalist does then that, that really triggers the policy department is that they will go to a politician and ask, what do you think about this, right? That's, that's sort that's of right. a, a core part of this, right? Right. Yeah, it, it will spin up. And there's, as I've talked about, there's a cycle of outrage. It spins up into outrage. And when it's really whirring, this cycle of outrage, and you can imagine like a sort of spin dryer going here, you've got, you know, politicians feeding the media, feeding regulators, feeding politicians, and they're, they're, they'll all feed each other. So, so and, and at the heart of it, as I say, and not to dismiss it, there may be a genuine issue that people have raised. They're raising it with their politicians as constituents. They're raising it with the media in their campaigning capacity. And they're raising it with regulators because they think there should be some kind of legal sanction against the companies for it. But that all spins up. So it can originate from all different sources. And actually, each of those bodies as well can be the originator. So there's the citizen. The politician often originates the story. And they will, you know, the classic, uh, the the letter to Mark Zuckerberg in the case of Facebook, or used to be the letter to um, Larry and Sergey in the case of Google in the old days, and so on. Uh, so, so they would write their letters to the CEOs. They press release the letter, um, and then you know that's the initiation of the story. And and again, there may be down the line some constituents that have come to them, but it's really the story is owned and driven by a politician who takes it to the media. Then, of course, it's a you know very much a policy story. Sometimes it's a regulator, and uh, the regulator decides to launch legal action against a company, and and so it comes from them. A classic would be like a competition authority saying, we're now going to investigate so-and-so. And And again, maybe based on complaints they've received in private, but the competition authority now is driving the story, and everyone else will pile in. And then sometimes it's the media themselves, um, through their investigative journalism, who are actively going out and looking at something, again, maybe because citizens have come to them, but there'll be a period where the media themselves are are investigating what's happening with a company. And then the first you hear about it is when they come to you and say, classic for social media would be, we've been looking at your service and we've got 50 instances of horrible hate speech here. 
what are you going to do about it? <laughs> and so there is the media themselves have gone out and sort of harvested uh, the information that, that leads to the, the bad story. And then, as you say, they'll invite the politicians in and maybe send it to the regulator and it'll all spin up with everybody. And I think this this sort of dramatic structure is so important because even if it's a, if the citizen comes in and the tension is then set up with the regulator who has asked about this, and then the journalist asks the regulator or the politician, "What are you going to do about this?" And then suddenly that sets up the next step. It's it's sort of it's never a story; it's always no. a set of stories, right? There is always this sort of narrative arc through whatever happens in in, uh, in the press cycle, right? That's right, and the, and this way politicians are very um, familiar with it so they, they have these the classic sort of rules in politics which are never rules because uh, they, they're broken all the time but there is a sort of a, a general view that when there's a scandal in politics this will typically be a scandal about a politician that you know if the story is still running after 48 hours the politician's going to have to go and that's you know real recognition that yes you start there'll be a, a, some kind of scandal a politician has done x once that goes public, it's kind of an open invitation for everybody else who's got some problem with that politician to come forward. And there'll be a whole series of follow-on stories. And if they're still going after 48 hours, that's a serious problem. Well, in a similar way with a company, you know, they're longer cycles, uh, um, but there is still the sort of notion that uh, um, you know, once the story is kicked off, it's an open invitation for everyone else to jump in. If there is more and it runs and runs, something has to happen. And unlike with politicians, typically it's not a resigning matter, but it may be that the company has to announce that they're changing a policy or doing something differently in order to try and close down the press cycle. Yeah, and and this is and this is where you know if we're giving tips and tricks, I think one of the things that that uh, an experienced policy person will sort of teach you is that you should worry about the day three story. The day one story never runs unless if it's a big story, it never runs unless yeah. the journalist has a day three story in mind. And it's sort of that building up towards the day three story that you that you need to think through. And and this is where policy and PR may be slightly misaligned because PR wants to come out and kill the story. Uh, policy might suspect that the story is not killable. You can't kill this story. It's going to come back and there's going to be a day three. So in the beginning, sometimes I find, and I, I have a couple of examples in mind, um, some of the stuff around Street View, for example, where where uh, the PR team wanted to come out immediately and say, there's nothing here. We're not doing this. That's sort of nothing to see. Whereas the policy team was like, well, this is such a complex system and a complex service. We need to go away and think about exactly what it is that's happening and look at our own things before we reply. And how do you deal with that tension between wanting to kill the story and being aware that there's probably more lurking in the in the sort of dramatic structure of the thing? Yeah, you've put your finger on something really <laughs> challenging. And there are so many instances I can remember where, you know, at the end of day one, people are very satisfied going, yeah, that's the story over. Uh, you know, we answered it, and and then you know, uh, days, maybe weeks, maybe months later, you're still fighting it, and maybe regretting some of the things you said on day one. And and the classic example of that would be the Cambridge Analytica cycle that Facebook went through. Although, you know, we we most of the public attention was after the, um, there'd been some investigative journalism, there'd been some whistleblowing. You know, there's a big big story that that ran through the Guardian. 
Um, that actually was the second cycle. And there had been coverage of Cambridge Analytica and Facebook months before that, which had been one of those one-day cycles. And, and it sort of happened and, and there'd been a response and it had kind of died down again. And then it lurked and lurked and lurked and then came back. And wow, you know, how many months did that go on? So I think your your lessons there are, one, yes, you know, if if something is really substantive, trust your instincts. And actually some of the stuff that, you know, it's now been leaked around Cambridge Analytica shows that there were people commenting when that first round of stories happened going, oh, you know, this this is, I think they use adjectives like sketchy, there's stuff going on here that's really, you know, uh, challenging. Um, you know, trust your instincts that if there's something difficult going on, it's probably not going to go away and you should really uh, pay attention. Even if the stories die down on day one, they're going to come back at some point. So that's lesson one. I think lesson two is, as well, be really, really careful and this is a hard one actually you've got to be careful what you say on day one um if you haven't got all of the facts and that's often the case you're responding as a company without you know full view of what's going on so be really careful what you're saying on day one because the day four story may be somebody pulling apart and being able to prove that the thing you said on day one was wrong and you're uh, and generating the story momentum generate, right yeah. yeah exactly right the story yeah, yeah. is you know um we approached company x uh, and now we've got a document, which the journalists may have had all along, which proves that Company X lied when they responded to our day one story. And and so, but that sets up this horrible, horrible di- dilemma that I'm sure you, you've been in as well, which is, you know, your comms people are saying that we've got to say something. When we yeah. say nothing, the, the, the dreaded, you know, we ask them for comment and they declined is terrible. Um, so so you're, you're looking terrible because you're not commenting, but you you don't know actually the full picture and you're scrambling to find out the full picture as quickly as you can in order to be able to respond um one one uh, very very specific tip on this uh which i think we did get get to develop over time is look when you've got a story that you think is going to run have a meeting of a core group of people who who do understand what's going on and and can sort of try and get that information you need have it every single day first thing in the morning yeah. Even if you think there's nothing new, like just have it <laughs> uh, because things are going to happen and, and you've got to find a way where you're, you're, you're keeping the pressure on. Because the risk is, you, you, you know, day one, the thing blows up. You go, oh, we really must you know, find out the data on X, which is something they've raised. Story dies down on day two. So you forget to go and find the data on X. And the person who was tasked with it falls off their list. Actually, no, you're going to need the data on X. So have your daily meeting at which you go, have we got the data on X yet? Have we got the data on X yet? Because the chances are you're going to need it at some point. And you need to overreact because overreacting is far better than underreacting in these cases yeah. and making sure that you have all of the data, as you say. And the, the other tip and trick is sort of early on here is that, that you will ask or your comms folks will help you ask the journalist for all the data. You know, what are the videos you have or where did you hear this or what are your what are your sources, right? Then a journalist will often just blankly refuse to, to share those. Right. And I think it's... I think one thing that you can learn from that is that if they are not sharing, uh, then they have much more than you think. Then yeah. what they've shown you is the absolute minimum, because that's that's sort of how they play their game and they play it really well. So they show you the absolute minimum in order to then go on and sort of have that day three and day four story in there. And if you want to get this right, there's another thing that you have to get right at the beginning, and that is not putting forward the wrong spokesperson. Yeah. Um, because it, typically in multinational tech companies, for example, um, 
a journalist will head off and sort of try to find out who is the highest honcho for Facebook or Google in this country and go to the country manager. Then the country manager will feel an urge to respond and perhaps even, you know, be put forward as a spokesperson because it's great to have a local voice. But you know at some point that this is not a local issue. It's not going to be solved in the country. And so that person can then be put under tremendous pressure by the media in the country. So picking your spokesperson in the beginning, how do you think about that? What sort of yeah. what's your preferred method of sort of finding someone who can who can speak in a sustained voice on this stuff? Yeah. I mean, I think this is hard uh, in the sense that there there are i think very few people in companies generally who who both have the skill set and the time to do this and these are both limitations so that this the skill set is, is to uh I was say appear human <laughs> i mean that's the primary <laughs> skill set is not to be you know the corporate talking talking head and that's really challenging sometimes uh you know to be sufficiently uh, empathetic and human and that's what most people want actually if you do media training and people have done that they'll know that most of the signals that people take from somebody when they see an interview it's about how the person came across not necessarily the detail of the words they were saying right. and so somebody who comes across as kind of chippy and defensive and corporate is going to leave a terrible impression even if they said all the right things so so it's a performance, and I don't mean that it's not cynical. Again, we can keep it around. It's not cynical to say that, but you're representing the company. To be able to perform well when you do that is critical. In the same way as it is on the political side, you know, there are people who can present well as politicians. Same in the media. Actually, there are people who are very good on TV or radio, uh, but not every journalist is good on TV and radio. There's lots of others who do the backroom work. So. The person who's got the skills critical, that's that's the thing. And I think you'll end up with a very small pool and usually you know them and they're the same people. Um, uh, you know, they're, they're, there will be a small group of people that, that you feel confident to go out there and present well. Then the time thing is, oh, so difficult. I mean, to do this properly takes hours and hours and hours and hours of someone's time. And you mentioned, you know, country managers, for example, they're typically people who's, diaries may be blocked out for like three to six months ahead they're scheduled every day they've got all critical meetings with key clients and things like that it's not a question of like well let's just sort of pop out and do a 10 minute interview between two meetings there's going to be hours of preparation um and so again that tends also to be a limiting factor who has the time to do the preparation properly uh, so that when they appear it doesn't go horribly wrong um, so those are really the criteria: skills and time. And how do you think about how do you think about? Uh, so if I'm the journalist, I want to meet somebody who can actually make the change I'm asking for, right. right? How do you think about the leveling of the person? Should it be? Uh, I mean, obviously, they'd like the CEO in every single case because that's that's sort of the the prize that you can go for. But even as a policy person, would you prefer to have like an engineer or a comms person who's trained in this, somebody who can speak to the details and mm. perhaps even promise changes? Or how do you how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think this is where it is different. We talked about this in the context of um, hearings, uh, you know, parliamentary hearings and so on. In parliamentary hearings, there is a very strong element of democratic accountability where the the view is we should have the CEO or someone senior because we want the accountable person sitting in front of us because we are elected representatives. I actually don't think that applies to the media. I think the media know that that actually doesn't apply for them. They're not holding you accountable in the same way. The, the sort of more 
stately institutions, the BBC and so on, may may feel that they sometimes are there. But I think most most of them accept that no, they're trying to get the facts for the story. Uh, you know, they're not the body that actually has a right to demand that CEOs come in front of them as long as they've got um, somebody who, who can explain what's going on. So, so the reality is, you know, the vast majority of queries from media are actually dealt with by. Um, comms people inside companies. I mean, the vast majority by a long and thank long God way. for those comms people. They yeah, do, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and 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 they'll come to you and they'll they'll mediate with the media. So they'll come to you and they'll say, "We've had this query, policy people. If it's a policy issue, what should we say?" And then it'll go out as a spokesperson. Sometimes name, sometimes oh yes, you mentioned our country's different. Really interestingly, there'll be some countries that where the media culture is, it can come from a spokesperson. And there'll be some countries where the media culture is that, no, they must have a named individual or they won't publish it. There'll be some countries where the comms person can ring up, talk it through with the journalist, what they call off the record, and then give them a quote. There'll be other countries, like Nordics famously, I know, do this, where everything you say to the journalist can be quoted and there's no way that they're going to have a conversation where it's sort of off the record. Um but basically comms people will deal with it. And I say, I think for journalists, they are much, much more focused on getting the story, the facts, than they are focused necessarily on this accountability point. And that's one of the big differences between journalistic interactions and parliamentary interactions. And it also depends on what stage you are in the press cycle. In the beginning, I think having somebody who's a spokesperson or somebody who's who's not necessarily connected is really, really good. But when you're getting far enough into a press cycle and things are really complicated, it can be helpful to to wheel someone out who has sort of a different title. It can be a, a more senior title or a more technical title or something like that. Because at that point, who you present can be a way for you to respond, can't it? Yeah. Well, this is where it's very different across the media. So there comes a point, you know, particularly where it's uh, playing out on television. So this is where it is different, where, again, you need that reassurance to the public. So something terrible is happening. Uh, um, you know, there's a there's going to be a high-profile TV show. One of the national broadcasters is going to have a high-profile TV show on it. If you don't turn up, that looks terrible. Um, particularly, if, you know, for example, they've got people who sadly have been affected by whatever it is your company's done, and they're going to have broadcast them. Um, so you don't want to not turn up. If you put in somebody uh, uh, who's sort of too technical, again, that's going to come across uh, as though you're not owning it or you're not taking ownership of the problem. So that's that's the instance where you generally will are most likely to consider a senior person with a senior role um, who can who can go out and say, look, we own this, we're taking responsibility for it. And they say that's that's those television moments in particular where that's really quite different, I think, from from all of the other media. But you could have this in a in a sort of interview if you're on day 10 or 12 or 14 in a story. You could also imagine um, the country manager or somebody senior from the company saying, look, we've seen all this, we understand the problem, and here's how we're responding to it. Because that person can then come to it with new authority yeah, and exactly. perhaps also the ability to affect change. So you're it's it's sort of because this is the this is sort of the the key here right at all points in the press cycle you're trying to get some kind of grip over the narrative that's being told about your company uh, but it's incredibly hard to do at the beginning of the press cycle you're going to be on the defensive for the first one or two days and trying to grab the story then is is a bit like grabbing the the tail of the tiger right so it's yes. not going to work 
But your ability to set the narrative increases if you do things right with the length of the story, uh, depending on the onslaught. I think it's really interesting to think about where that's not the case for Cambridge Analytica. That's that's sort of very difficult, even in day 200, to sort of set the story. But but there are those opportunities where you mm. later into the press cycle can, can start tweaking the narrative. Don't you Sorry. think? Yeah, and, and there is a difficult judgment call, which... Um, you know, comms people will 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 have to make in most cases, which is, you, you're right. The tendency tends to be sort of escalate as the cycle goes on. You 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 know, the comms team will deal with initial queries. They may then get a a, a, a more sort of junior person to speak to the journalists. You know, uh, on day two, three, and then by the time the the thing you've seen that the thing keeps running, you then wheel out your big guns to try and shut it down. There's a really interesting judgment call as to whether or not you should get the big guns out earlier in order to shut it down, or, or whether getting the big guns out is just going to lead to a demand for even bigger guns. So there's this sort of uh, judgment call you often have to make: at yeah. what point should you you play people in? And that this is for the very reactive stories where you're not controlling the agenda at all. There are other instances we should talk about where you do get a heads up. And, and again, journalistic ethics mean that you're typically given a right of reply. You're right, you may not be given all of the information up front, but in some cases you're given quite a lot and you're invited to be part of the story. Um, and then you have to make a judgment. This would be particularly true when it's a you know longer form, like a TV documentary or a radio show, where um, they've got all their material ready, and they're interviewing a whole bunch of people about something. Uh, uh, I had one that I dealt with where they'd actually sent undercover reporters in to uh, a, a Facebook moderation center. So they, you know, they came to us quite rightly then, and they said, you know, we've got all this footage of these things happening, and we're going to run big documentary expose of all the things that's happening. And then the comms team have to say, look, who are we going to, you know, uh, uh, offer to them to interview to tell our side of the story in the documentary? And I got the uh, short straw. <laughs> but, you know, that, you know, and that's an hour where you, some of the material you know, some they might, they're trying to sort of spring on you in the middle of the interview, which is fine. That's that's their prerogative. Um, but there are, I say, we should note that there are a bunch of stories where you have this longer lead time, and that and that's a quite a different, I think, exercise than the ones where you're just reacting to the thing they've got today. And it's such a good point because it also raises something else that I think uh, is really important from a policy perspective, and that is the sort of we have now talked about the depth of the story, how it unfolds over time, and the different steps from initiation over to sort of you know the question of whether or not you can kill it to you know at what point you try to 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 put forward a sort of alternative narrative to the narrative being told initially and that's the depth of the story but the story then spreads across different kinds of sources right so that's you right. can have one newspaper that initiates the story and then it's reported on in radio it's in tv in other newspapers and this is where the notion of preempting the story that you just raised uh, you have the facts you know that uh, the something something uh, magazine is going to run an article uh, Thursday, because they're now looking for confirming quotes from you, or sort of they're asking you questions because they are going to run Thursday. Then, then you know, in our modern world, and and I'm sure you have had to discuss this as well. There is always the option of of publishing the preemptive blog. That's right. 
right? You can go out and you can say that, you know, it's come to our attention that people are going to write about this and we'd just like to set the story straight. What you're doing then is not that you're, you're not caring about that story because that will be published anyway. You don't, I mean, you know that you won't be controlling it, but you're hoping to control the breadth of the story. Yeah. So tr- if you, even when it's reported somewhere else, you're hoping that journalistic ethics, and often you know journalistic ethics are adhered to, will require that your version of the story is in some way also included in as it spreads sort of horizontally across other media, yeah. right? So yeah, talk the, about the preemptive blog. It's it, such a it, it's such a weird it, thing in a sense, but it's it, it's it real. And I, uh, yeah, and I should say uh, it's one of those triumphs of hope over experience because I think it nearly always backfires. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe that's a lesson for people because you do yes. it and you, and you go, well, wouldn't this be clever? We, we can get all the facts out up front. <laughs> You drive the journalists insane, yes. And, you know they hate it for obvious reasons. You're kind of trying to blow up their story. They see it as a super aggressive move, and you know if if you're you know if you're a business where people have a lot of sympathy, maybe they would take your preemptive blog and uh, face value. In reality, if you're in the firing line, all they hear, the public hears, is oh, Facebook tried to spike this story, or Google tried to spike this story that was a legitimate story. And so, in fact, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, honestly, like so lesson yes always consider it but nearly always dismiss it please because it's going yes, to backfire yes. and blow up in your faces so but, but it does it, it, it does no i i think you're exactly right but it does happen again and again and again because yeah. there's this wish to sort of if we just get out with the facts people will see our side of the story and i think that's the the sort of the the tragic mistake here, there is that there is a lot of people who know, feel intuitively that they're on the right side of an issue, and they can't see that the rhetoric and structure of the drama in media won't let them be on yeah. the right side of the issue, right? Exactly. It's not set up for them. I mean, like, again, when we talked about committee hearings, you know, parliamentary committee hearings are not set up for you to win the argument. They're set up for you to take a beating. And and a lot of these stories, are, yeah, they're set up for you to take a beating and you should yeah. just recognise that. And so one of the other judgments, as well as the, the preemptive move, there's, there's a general stance you can take. You know, are, are you, when, when you hear the story is coming, you can decide you want to be dismissive. We'll, we'll just ignore it. That's when that you know we contacted them and they were not available for comment. You're just going to like go la la la. I'm going to dismiss it. You can be super aggressive. You can try and sort of brief against the story in the journalist, and you can do your preemptive blogs and things. Or you can do the you know it's a fair cop gov uh, approach where you <laughs> go fine. You've you've identified something that's a problem. We're going to deal with it. And again, it's hard from a so human point of view to suck it up, but. I have to say, in my experience, it's a fair cop gov is nearly always the best strategy, um, you know, except for the most kind of outlandish and outrageous stories. Like, it's a fair cop. We're going to deal with it. The public understands that and I think has more respect for you than if you fight it. Um, I, I very much agree. And I think your point on, on the dismissive stance is, from a policy perspective, the dismissive stance was the one that scared me the most. Because if the journalists can't get a modicum of accountability out of you, you just know what they're going to do next. And that's that they're going to go to the political layer or the regulatory layer, and they're going to ask for that accountability from them. And say, they're not answering our questions. They're not answering our, our accusations. Isn't it your moral responsibility, a regulator or politician, to make sure that they at least answer answer questions the public have a right to know. So the dismissive strategy, while it looks attractive uh, because it might kill the story, uh, is is almost always a guaranteed way of turning what what is a press issue into a much larger uh, policy issue, I think. 
Yeah, it it, inv- it invites that pressure, and, and that reminds me. And it's the other thing you just don't control. So you're you're talking to a journalist, and you're giving them your quotes, and you're quite satisfied with your quotes, and you think, you know, and you've heard what the journalist has to say. And so it's easy to forget that they're shopping around other people for quotes at the same time, and they're feeding back what you say to the other people. Oh, they go to or, you or first, right? Yeah, yeah. And yeah, then yeah, yeah. they'll, and, you know, and Facebook said this was not an issue. What do you think? Yeah, and so. That's the bit that you're you you have no visibility into that until the story actually comes out. And again, it's it's sort of easy to forget that and then then sort of feel aggrieved that uh, they did that. Again, one of the um, strategies that companies adopt is is to try and uh, uh, sort of preempt who the journalist is going to talk to and try and set up some friendlier voices or get to the people that might also be quoting the story. I, I have to say that's one strategy that can work um, actually quite well if it's done. You know, correctly and not too clumsily, you can you can mess this one up as well. But you know, if, if there are people who really ought to be part of the story, and uh, they're not your pets that you've picked and sort of tried to steer the journalist towards, that's the one that goes wrong. But you know, you're dealing with a a child safety story. There is a, a, a sort of uh, leading child safety organization who would expect to be quoted in them. And if you know that leading child safety organization, you contact them and explain your side of it preemptively that i think is fair game and knowing yeah. that they're going to be speaking to the journalist later so that that sort of thing works well and again depends on you genuinely having support from some of these third parties you're not um you're not as they either cherry picking your own third parties or somehow inappropriately sort of trying to uh, coerce third parties into being nice but a genuinely supportive third party may be helpful in the story and I don't think supportive is is necessary either. I think fair criticism is actually That's really right. helpful because yeah. the, the the thing that, that uh, the worst thing that can happen is not that you get accurate fair criticism. The worst thing that can happen is a, a sort of broad misrepresentation of what you are doing and the consequences of your actions and your services. And I think that's sort of the the most harmful press cycles aren't the revelatory ones that tell the world about something that you're doing. Uh, but the most harmful press cycles are the ones that sort of that, that distort things and let people think that you are doing things that you're absolutely not doing or that the internet is is leading to consequences that absolutely is not, not involved in. And I think the fair criticism, having people who are strong but fair critics is extremely important. And that's sometimes lost even in policy teams because you don't like people who tell you all the time that you're doing bad things. But you should really classify your critics. And you should find out those critics who, who, if you look at what they're saying, they're factually correct about your practices. They're factually correct about their conclusions, even if you disagree with them. And they're moderate in the way that they state them. Those are, those are some of the best people to learn from first and also i think some of the best people to get involved in a press cycle don't you like that's right yeah no, and i think arguably the uh, external oversight board that facebook's established is kind of it, it fits exactly into that zone that these are people who are independent who are going to be critical of facebook uh and i know some people are critical of the oversight board because it was established by facebook but i think it is g- genuinely independent in terms of the voice of the people and you look at their profiles they're not people who are going to be coerced yeah. but, but you can see that the benefit to facebook they've not done this you know entirely out of the goodness of their heart the benefit to facebook is they have created a group of informed and fair critics of their service who who 
will be and should be, you know, authoritative sources for anyone who's writing a story. If you want to write a story about how Facebook has treated a particular type of content, there's a good chance now that there'll be an external oversight board judgment which talks about that type of content and what Facebook did and and criticizes them where they think they've done it badly. So so I think you're exactly right. How do you, you know, there, there, it's very difficult. Um, if the company sets something up, they're, unless they're super careful, there'll be a tendency to say it's just a creature of the company. It will it's, be dismissed. Yeah, yeah. I it'll get right. dismissed. Um, you know, companies do. We've been there. They do try and create these friendly fire organizations. That's nearly always found out and, mm. and you know, loses its value. Um, and companies maybe don't spend enough time with identifying those people who who will be critical but will be fair in their criticism yeah um, uh, because the tendency is to for all of us we sort of uh, gather around and 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 throw up the the defenses when people criticize us and and again you may you may blow it because somebody gives you fair criticism and then your your instinct is to attack back at them and now the, there's no trust between you and them and so you, you you've lost the ability to have a good dialogue with them and that that would be a mistake i uh, well that would be Something I would urge people to avoid is, is uh, you know, creating the barriers between you and people who are maybe fierce but fair critics. Yeah, um, and, and this is a difference between the PR and policy uh, objectives in a sense, right? Because the PR objectives is to make the company look good and sort of get to weather the the press cycle and get through it, whereas. As a policy team, you're actually quite happy to have a set of fair critics out there who are constantly criticizing you in a sustained way, but from an informed basis, to your point, being informed yeah. critics. And and uh, even if you don't like what they're saying, you prefer it a lot over what people are saying who are uninformed uh, critics who are merely in it to to um, to boost their own names or to, yeah. to sort of use the brand as a, as a leverage point for their own uh, commentary uh, careers. And so I, th- I think that that there's there's a little bit of tension there between what the different functions in a company want to accomplish. And uh, I would urge people who work with policy to embrace the fair critics and try to make sure to boost them, make sure that those are the people we point to if there is indeed criticism or a, a bad press cycle. And I think there is great, great value in that. Yeah, and that judgment of where somebody sits, I think, is is uh, is quite challenging at times. Um, you know, is is the person... But, uh, you know, are they going to be... Uh, are they looking to be reasonable or are they simply looking to criticise? And sometimes you can get that wrong and you, you, you know, you form a relationship with somebody, but they're, they're just going to end up sort of slamming you anyway they're not listening to what you have to say yeah because uh, it doesn't kind of suit their agenda and i've certainly had experience. Well, you get them at the wrong point in the funding cycle yeah. i mean there are so many things that can go wrong so it's really yeah. hard to your point yeah. now we, we're back in the press cycle we just talked about the preemptive blog but now let's talk about generally how a company responds because we have um a story, we have somebody who originated it, we have a set of questions from a journalist coming in through the comms department, and it's a policy issue, so the policy department has been involved, and now there's like this question, should we should we call back to the journalist, let's you know say what we want to say to them, but as little as possible, then we have the opportunity to to tweet, to put something up on our Facebook page, to write a blog on our own, not to preempt the story, but the question of how you design your response strategy now comes up. Uh, is your response strategy, are you going to bring all of your response onto the stage of the media you're working with? Or are you going to try to build your own 
stage for responding how uh, again you know what do you think is most because yeah. there the the equation looks slightly different on hope and experience right yeah i, I mean again i think um if done well the the idea that you invest time and we often don't do enough of this but investing time in speaking to potential critics and other stakeholders i think is actually a very valuable investment and as i said i think there's a tendency not sometimes you're spending so much time just dealing with the press fallout that you don't think to spend the time talking to other key interested parties so they're they're just interpreting the the story through the press they're not getting your side of the story again has to be done very carefully because you know if 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 you're too clumsy about it it's like you're briefing you know either the tone is wrong you're briefing against the press so so i think if you're going to do this it works again much better if you if you're saying look that story yeah it's it's a fair cop that they found something but it's not quite as you thought it more you might think it is and here's some other facts that you need versus you know i'm going to go around the the back and and brief you that that press story is rubbish uh so that can be done wrong if the tone is wrong or if you go to the wrong people <laughs> because sometimes you go to people and then the next bit of the press cycle is you'll never guess what you know that press story came out and facebook came on really heavy to me <laughs> trying to trash no. the story and and it's somebody who you know you really shouldn't have gone done it. and again we've seen lots of instances of that and you then you've just created another rod uh, for people to beat you with so yeah uh, and uh, do it but do it you know smartly <laughs> and yeah. also do it with with sort of keeping your audiences in mind because one yeah. of the things that that uh, i learned i think quite late but i i sort of got what that when you're responding to a press story you're responding to the press yes you're also responding to politicians which is slightly different right mm. you can arm friendly politicians with arguments if you write your own blog so that you know people who are predisposed to believe in what you're saying at least know what your defense looks like and can pick up bits and pieces of it if they find it credible but then you're also at some level speaking to all of your users. So you might publish this preemptive blog or a blog that responds to a press story and you can say you're not winning the press cycle with that. And you know the person who publishes might say, that's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying yeah. to make sure that our users know what the story is because they trust the press even less than they trust us. Because trust in the press has plummeted over the last decades or so. So who do you pick as your audience? Yeah, do you uh, talk to a press that sees plummeting trust? Or you talk to your users who are interested in what your story is? How do you how do you balance that? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the press trust is plummeting by a number of measures, but I still think it's believed far more than anything then, a company says in their own right. I mean, you know, any company. And so <clears throat> certainly my experience was with policymakers, and this is a, a salutary lesson, that I would, you know, meet policymakers who would quote back to me half a dozen stories in the press that I thought we'd debunked. And we spent a lot of time sort of debunking, but the story landed and it stuck. And three years later, the policymakers say, yeah. oh, but you did X. And, you, yeah. and you're, and I, and I'm sort of being horrified. But, but you know, you know, we didn't do X because we all of this explanation, blah, 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 didn't stick that that you know, stick it in a newspaper, stick it on TV, and it carries an or on the radio, it carries an authority, uh, uh, and that authority means that it sticks in people's minds. And I think again, a lesson is, uh, you know, if you want to reverse that, actually, the the best way to reverse that perception is through another story in a newspaper or on tv 
anything you do sort of directly or as a company announcement or as a blog post is is not going to outweigh the thing that appeared on the mainstream media. So that maybe is a, a lesson for policy people is thinking, how do they get their policy messages if they've got one and they think there is something that they want to correct? How do they get a mainstream media story about that? Particularly given that, you know, the original story was probably a highly negative one and, and that will have sold uh, newspapers or eyeball views. And you may be trying to promote, you know, this sort of positive corrective story and you may just get no traction for it. But I still think, again, if you're thinking where to invest, invest in that. Invest in thinking, you know, where can I get a story that tells accurately something I need policymakers to know in the kind of media that the policymakers watch? Uh, can, and that will make but, your job a lot easier. But can it be a pure correction? Doesn't it have to be a conversion <laughs> to a sense that you're saying, you know, there is some truth to this, but here right. is what we're doing and here's how we're changing yeah. it. And that's why, you know, that's yesterday's news and here's what it looks like right now. Or we used to do it that way, but now we do it this way. Because you, you need, the drama suggests that a pure... I, I don't know any correction that has ever been effective. It's, it's, it's not correcting, but it's a... Um, uh, it's something that sort of counterbalances. Let's take the example of Donald Trump and his famous social media feeds. You know, the media story were going on. Uh, there were media stories going on and on. It's outrageous. Donald Trump gets to say this. Facebook and Twitter don't care. They're on the side of the, you know, e- evil empire. Blah 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 blah. Um, when they took their the feeds down again, head, headline major story. Now, of course, they get criticized for being censoring too much and blah, blah, blah. But it's it's left people in no doubt. The people that, you know, hated those companies for being tolerant of Trump, they know that the companies are not tolerant of Trump. So they've, they've got a different picture of the reality of it. Now, if that had all been sort of quietly done, it wouldn't be the same. So that's an example. And other examples in the UK where, again, the similar, uh, similar vein you know, the Facebook was accused of giving a, being a platform for far-right people. Some of the most prominent, they were from a group called Britain First, ended up being taken down. Um, I was, as I personally, still quite nervous about what that means from a free expression, political interference point of view. Um, other colleagues thought that we should make a thing of it. And actually, I think they were right, because the latest press story, when you go and talk to a politician and they're saying, you guys are torrent to the far right because they're living off the press stories from two or three years ago that said they were tolerating the far right. Now there's a fresher press story you can point to and go, yes, but remember that big fuss we had six months ago because we actually took these guys out and they go, oh, yes, yeah, now you're censoring politics. But <laughs> at least you've corrected the impression that you won't take action on the far right. You've maybe left a different impression. I, I remember this vividly because if I remember correctly, <laughs> it was in, in advance of a hearing and uh, while Facebook had taken action and got a good story out of it, uh, yeah. an, another uh, company close to me had not. So <laughs> I was not looking forward to that question. Uh, ultimately, then we ended up also taking action uh, at that time uh, or Google did. But, but it's interesting because it's... It's sort of that's that's the other part of it. A press story is never just a press story. It bleeds into hearings. It bleeds into all kinds of different political discussions. It can bleed into a regulatory situation. Let's talk about that a bit. Hmm. There are, you know, you talk about October surprises in elections, but there is yeah. something like that that can really push a legislative proposal. Let's talk about the 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 um, uh, network legislation in. Hmm. Germany. Do you yeah. think that without the associated press cycles that that legislation would have gone through? 
No, I mean, so the, this Network Enforcement Act was was targeted at hate speech. It was actually, I mean, it's targeted, I think, really quite directly at the far right. The fact there was the growth of the far right in Germany, which is which is a serious issue. You had a coalition government of the you know mainstream left and right wing parties. Um, you know, there was bad stuff being circulated on Facebook. There's no doubt, and on other social media. And you know, I was there at the time. The company was trying to sort of catch up with dealing with the volume of, of bad content and making judgments that sort of aired in favor of freedom of expression. It wasn't actually allowing, you know, really outrageous stuff, but uh, sometimes the really outrageous stuff got through and it went on the front page of a newspaper. And you're right, this cycle definitely spun up because of the, the media intervention, which then led to broad public support, I think, for the legislation, which might otherwise have not been the case. And, and Germany is actually interesting because it has got a strong freedom of expression view as well. And so I, I think certainly my judgment would be that had it not been taken up as a story where, you know, somebody's saying something really awful that they really shouldn't have said, you know, they might have only said it to six people on the platform. It really, in a sense, in an absolute sense, it wasn't that impactful. But stick that on the front page of Bill Zeitung, and now it's been seen by millions of people, and millions of people are saying, oh, my God, that kind of stuff is on Facebook. And then when the politicians say, we're going to legislate, they go, damn right, you should. And so you can build support for it. Had that media cycle not been there, there may have been a lot stronger view saying, why is the government interfering with our speech? Yeah, I don't like the AFD. I don't like the far right, but they've got a right to speak. And you could easily see the debate going the other way. And I think a crucial deciding factor was the way in which, you know, the hate speech on Facebook was being covered at the time. And, and some early stories that were also about the key uh, people who were pushing the legislation uh, brought to their attention that they were being the subject of hate speech online, which I think is yes. another really interesting part of how this feeds into the legislative cycle. Um, so as a politician, somebody, a, a very crafty journalist, finds a set of things written about you on the internet and ask, do you think this is okay? Should this be about you? And then suddenly you discover this horrible thing that people are doing and you react in a very human way and you go like, this can't be allowed. And people tell you it's allowed. That's the point at which a legislator can react very differently from, from uh, anyone else. And so the connection between press cycles and legislative work is much, much closer, I think, than most people realize. It's not sort of two separate worlds, but what happens in the press world never stays there. It bleeds into the legislative process as well. And yeah. there can be the equivalent of the October surprise that you talk about in American elections that can sort of shift the entire election can certainly happen in the legislative process as well, I think. Yeah, and and as well as the legislative process, there's the you know where under existing law the regulatory pressure to take regulatory action, which I think also comes out of this. So it may be that you know a regulator was not particularly focused on a company. They may have actually we we saw this a lot with the privacy um, issues at Facebook that there were a number of regulators who you know their starting position. And, uh, I think it's not sort of like a secret. There'd be quite a few regulators in Europe who would be. Well, you know, people go on social media, they share stuff with each other. I'm not sure there's much for me to look at here. You know, it seems pretty transparent, which I think it is. Like you're going on there to share personal stuff with other people. And it's not a surprise that you do that. And it's funded by advertising. That's fine. But as the stories grew and, and you know, um, uh, there are press cycles talking about privacy scandals and things like that, even those regulators who perhaps have been more laissez-faire before, felt they needed to be more aggressive and take more action. And and again, there's no doubt there's a relationship, and they should in a sense. A regulator is 
acting in the public interest and should pursue those issues that the public is oh, yes. uh, exercised about or feeling threatened by. And the press is one way of learning what the public feels threatened by or exercised about. Um, and and but this is the the so if you're running a policy team though your job is to think about the press cycle not as a press cycle that has a beginning and an end but the long shadow of that yeah. press cycle into the legislative work. So another example of this that is really interesting from a press cycle perspective um, are the different tax stories that started coming out quite early on you know is big tech paying its fair share of, share of tax and I I remember seeing these stories in the beginning and I was thinking that they almost had like a, a seasonal character it would be you know reported revenues and taxes and they were too small for what the you know journalists thought was equitable so they wrote a story about it there was outrage for four days and that's it and those four days were the outrage days and then the story went away what I think almost every single person underestimated was two different things the amplitude of that seasonal story increased every year we got a little bit louder a little bit louder and the long shadow of two or three such stories led to the inescapable conclusion that the tax system was not working for the digital companies and something needed to be done and so i think that whole discussion we we're now having in the g20 for example was inspired and informed to a very large degree by those accumulated press cycles that cast a long shadow into the into the policy debate, and yeah. I'm not I'm not passing judgment on whether that's right or wrong. It's just interesting to see the causal chain. I think the model yeah. there. I mean, it's it's reminded me. I'm sure you're in these discussions where, you know, this is one way you control the cycle because it's your company's results that you're going to put out there. <laughs> so you've got the data before <laughs> the journalists. And I remember you must have these conversations. You're sitting there and they're like, you know, when we put these numbers out, which we have to by law, is there a way we can get them to land positively? And you kick it around and, and no. No. <laughs> no, no, no. It's like, it's but, like, it's it's like, <laughs> and you had one year where you had like four thousand dollars in tax or something yeah. or pounds in tax, and I, I, we had a similar. And I, I yeah. just remember, you know, there's, 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 we could throw this into a helicopter and it wouldn't spin. I'm sorry, it's yeah. just what it works. So limits, but the other that does remind me of the other thing, which those stories exemplify. And to your point, Nicholas, is um, that stories also become cumulative, and so yeah. so it's no longer a case of we're just going to report the Google tax results, the Amazon ones. Next time we report the Google ones, we'll quote again the last Facebook and Amazon ones. And then, you know, over time, there's this long litany uh, and lots of stories become cumulative like that. It's really hard to get out from under them because there's ready-made copy uh, that's literally sitting on the journalist's computer. They can, you know, often little pop-up boxes. So here's the story about Google and here's the pop-up box saying how terrible Amazon is on the same issue. And and so, yes, it's, it's a, it sort of um, spreads and grows over time. Uh, as a story and this is this is such an important point i'm very happy you raised it because i think this is something that you also have to realize when you're looking at this with your sort of company policy eyes it's never a good thing to make the story about another company because when it ultimately becomes about a story about your company uh, all of those other some company stories come back and and haunt you the the cumulative compounded story is always an industry story and it, your entire industry is going to be a part of it. It is very unlikely that you're going to be able to throw somebody else under the bus and come out of smelling of, of roses. That's that's probably not going to happen. And the, and the cumulative effect, I think, is also the one where, where if you're 
too sanguine about the fact that our users love us, though politicians seem to have an issue with us, which is a recurring sort of thought I think many people have who work in tech companies that, you know, it seems as if our services are doing quite well and people are not signing off in large numbers. I think you're underestimating the cumulative effect of those stories over time because they can put the dent in your reputation. And there are new reputation numbers out now that I think shows some of this um, when you look at the across the tech companies, where the cumulative stories about Facebook have been, they've been hitting Facebook hard for a very extended time, and you see a drop in the reputation numbers. That is, that is, I yeah. think, hard to explain by any other mental model that we have applicable for us. That's right. And from from the policy team's point of view, the risk that creates, almost just as we described with the Network Enforcement Act in Germany is that whatever the politicians sort of come up with as a legislative response, you're not going to have anybody on your side to try and push back. And that's what we found that, you know, we tried to sort of activate the freedom of expression community, but no, it's like they've all read, everyone's read the stories, you know, and so you don't even get support from the people who would normally sympathize with you. And, and again, we can look at the tax issue. That cumulative effect means that, you know, governments can come up with proposals that, completely break you know tax norms and are actually really bad from a sort of technical point of view but the public will still support them and when you try and explain this no no one's going to listen to you and so that's that, right i think is the real risk from a policy point of view of letting this go and um it, it will give the politicians basically carte blanche to write any kind of legislation they like and and you're not going to have any ability to push back it's, the, it's almost like the generic nature of something in something has to be done increases yeah. with every story you will sort of pile on. At, yeah. at, at the end, it's really literally anything has to be done <laughs> so yeah. that you get away with with uh, a lot of things. I, I like that point. I think you're absolutely right. Now, uh, before we before we sort of leave this, this subject of, of press stories and how they tie into policy, there's an interesting phenomenon the last couple of years that, that wasn't there when you and I started, I think, and that is that one thing that now originates a lot of these stories are leaks yes uh, from the companies themselves um, and uh, how do you how do you think from a policy perspective about the the leak challenge yeah so, so I mean as a phenomenon I think it happens when companies get bigger and less happy <laughs> and and it's a little bit sort of again iterative in the sense that, the more that a company is criticized, the, the worse morale will get within the company and the more there are likely to yeah. be people who, who who accept the external criticism, who go uh, uh, to, to take the classic phrase, we are, maybe we are the bad guys. <laughs> and so when you've got people who are thinking that, you know, that maybe we are the bad guys, that they, one of the ways as a personal individual, you'll correct that is to say, well, look, if I put some documents out in the public domain, I can try and and redress the balance. I, I happen to think that's personally that I'm not particularly enamored by that, except in, you know, quite sort of um, specific circumstances. Whistleblowing is really important. Uh, yeah. And so defend the right to whistleblow. But a lot of this leaking is not necessarily whistleblowing. It's more tittle-tattle in the sense of, of um, you know, internal discussions that people have within the company where people say things that perhaps thoughtless or inappropriate, that's you know not necessarily telling you that there's a fundamental you know breach of human rights being committed by the company. It's more it's telling you that people in the company talk crap. <laughs> and so I think we need to distinguish like you know what's happening there. But people are inclined to do it. They are putting the documents out in the public domain. I mean, 
frankly, my view on how how a company should sort of best deal with that is to be much more transparent themselves. Yeah. I would argue that always within inside Facebook, like you know, and, and when you get to the inside, look, everything's going to come out anyway. So, yeah. so why not put a lot more stuff out there uh, up front and explain what it is you're doing? And when you've, I, I understand that you know you've got a research report, you're worried that people are going to treat it negatively and they're going to criticize you. Um, uh, one, it may not be as bad as you think. People may be more accepting if you put the research report out in, uh, with your own framing rather than waiting for it to be leaked. And two, you know, uh, uh, if you're consistently producing stuff that leads to criticism, maybe you need to fix the thing <laughs> that <laughs> yes. is causing the problem. Like, like, don't try and hide it, fix it. Sort of thing. Uh, it's easy for me to say that. It's hard. I know we're going to have to it's hard. Don't do that. But you know. Uh, I think having the discipline of transparency, this is why we, sunlight is the best disinfectant, knowing that something is going to be transparent maybe creates an extra impetus to fix it uh, that, that if you think you can keep it secret, you haven't got. So anyway, I think just as a discipline, be, the best medicine or the best antidote to leaking is to put the stuff out there yourself. Um, what I really hope doesn't happen, but I fear is likely to happen, is that the other response is you write less stuff down, you do less. You don't, you know, you, and again, sure the discussion is going on now where companies go shall we do this research into this thing well you know if we do it's only going to get a leak six months down the track and that's too high risk therefore we won't do the research like that is really not a healthy response uh, but or, i can understand or, why people would do it or it just eliminate their internal meetings which is yeah. the other thing that's happening right i remember yeah. tdif when at some point TDIF was being live tweeted and it was just crazy. You had this enormous access to the leadership of the company where you had the real mechanism of influence, the real leverage as, as an employee of the company. And that was being taken away from everyone because somebody had decided that they, they would leak and sort of not just even leak a specific thing, but just mm. sort of provide transparency themselves through yeah through their own choice and 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 again i do sympathize with the whistleblower um problem i think that's real and should be protected but i also i also think that from a policy perspective uh what happens now is you have to you have to assume the transparent company you have to you have to sort of say well everything we're saying is going to at some point come out and i think that makes companies a little bit more stupid because they can't gather time to think things through or to bat ideas around because ideas sort of taken out of context can look bonkers and so you end up in a situation where you become less reflective less seeking less exploratory and i think that's that in long term i think for a policy team that's a nightmare because you want a company who's thoughtful and reflected or reflective and and so i i, I do worry about that a bit yeah i mean i think there's somewhere to for people to go and have a look and i think policy teams might might be the right people to lead on this is looking at freedom of information rules for governments and again, not to say that companies like governments, but they're, they're organizations of a similar complexity making similarly complex decisions. And you generally, certainly in the UK framework, there's a general right to freedom of information. But then there are some carve-outs, very specific carve-outs for things like, you know, direct advice to ministers, which would be the equivalent of sort of private executive or board meetings. But but there's a lot in there. This has evolved over the years, and other countries will have, have their own frameworks. There's the, it's always good to learn from people who've been through this and tried to, to deal with similar challenges. And I say, I think government decision-making 
uh, with freedom of information requirements has been through a similar process. And, and it wouldn't be a bad thing for companies to end up, these big companies, tech companies, to end up in a similar place. General presumption, information is put out in the public domain because the public has an interest uh, in it with with a, a really thoughtful set of carve-outs for where things uh, need to be kept private with a rationale for why that is the case. And, and then I, to start operating in that mode so that you you understand that these documents are public and you understand, and now I'm going into the private document space. And I, I think the other thing you need to do is to realize that that fair criticism that we talked about before can come from inside the company as well and not see yeah. criticism as a sign of disloyalty because it's absolutely not. I think that criticism can make a company much stronger. And what happens with a company where there are leaks is that you, you suspect that criticism and the lack of loyalty are the same thing, whereas criticism can be the best thing you can do for an organization. So the notion of fair, informed criticism within or outside of a company is extraordinarily important to make sure that you stand strong and prepared in, in not just a press cycle, but generally in the policy environment. I yeah. Think. I mean, I that there is a real chilling effect there. And again, I saw it when you're in one of these leak cycles, people who would previously have robustly challenged something will maybe shut up. And the reason is because they think if as soon as they start challenging things, everyone's going to look at them and go, oh, you're the leaker. Yeah. You're the one. And that's you know. a tragedy, right? Because just, then yeah. you lose those, you lose the necessary dissent that yeah. every organization should cultivate. And I think that's yeah. that's really bad. Okay yeah. then. So uh, that's press, and I, you know, we should we should end with a proper shout out to our excellent comms colleagues that we've had a chance to work with over the years. I think they do yeah. fantastic work, and you know, I sincerely hope that either we bring them on the show or they start their own podcast because comms work in tech organization has been an interesting journey of its own. Um, but with that, I think we're closing this up, and uh, we can find the podcast at your website, which is www.regulate.tech. Thank you so much for listening and we hope to have you with us in the next episode.